think it's something that you do almost intuitively arrive at when you reach a certain age because you realize this isn't the run-up any longer. This isn't the dress rehearsal. I know I lived my life, and I think so many women do this, where we think, look, I'm going to do this job or make this sacrifice or whatever it'll be because it'll be great on my CV or it'll lead me to the next thing or whatever. You know, once menopause is over, then, you know, I'm going to be able to do this, this and this. There's always going to be something. When you reach your 40s, your 50s, I'm about to turn 50, it's like this is the real deal. Well, that's the voice of Sarah Wilson. She has spent years travelling the world, carving out her own path to health and happiness. I'm Liz Earle and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. And it's my mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our wellbeing today. Now, every single week I use that word thrive on this podcast. And today I want to really focus on it. What does it actually mean to thrive in midlife? So yes, this episode is about choosing to live our own lives, about making sure we're not just existing day to day, but really flourishing and being present, making active decisions that'll make us happier in midlife and beyond, not living for others or doing what you think you should do, but spending your time on this planet how you want to. Well, Sarah is the founder of the global I Quit Sugar movement. We'll touch on that in this conversation. Previously, she was the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine in Australia. She was the host of MasterChef Australia too. And now she builds and enables charity projects that engage humans with one another, to quote, and campaigns on mental health, consumerism and climate issues. She's also a multi-New York Times bestselling author for her latest book, this one wild and precious life. She hiked around the world for three years with just one backpack, following the footsteps of philosophers and scientists to devise her own path through the chaos of the climate crisis, loneliness and polarisation in the modern world. So what then is stopping us from thriving? What can we all learn about how to take control of living the life we really want to live? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome, Sarah. And you start the book by ostensibly reflecting on the climate crisis and indeed all the other really huge global events that we're all continuing to endure. But you say it's really about an itch, an overwhelming sense that we're not living life as we're really meant to. What do you mean by that? And, and how was that itch manifesting in your life? Yeah, I think when I set out to write the book, I was absolutely overwhelmed by all the things, you know. It, it wasn't just the climate crisis because we also had all the racial stuff that was going on. I mean, I wrote this book in and out of the COVID period, you know, name which period. There was Black Lives Matter stuff going on. There was the Trump election. There was Brexit going on. You know, it was so, so much. And coupled with all of that was the sense, and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to this, that we were somehow complicit in all of this, that we were the only ones who could fix it. But how? We we, we wanted to bury our heads in the sand and just hope that somebody comes along and, and you know, makes it all good again. And so it, it manifested for me as an itch. And I felt I needed to just give it a bit of a name so that we could all get on the same page from the outset, you know, mm. and, and own the fact that we were feeling 
all of these emotions and we weren't alone in feeling all of these emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And you've written a lot about your anxiety in the past and your argument there is that anxiety comes from an ache for more connection to life that maybe we're missing. Was that the case for you and your own anxiety, do you think? What else was at play for you? Yeah, I think anxiety has a big part to play in all of this. We wonder why there's growing anxiety rates, but also loneliness, you know. I mean, I think in the UK you've got a a minister for, for, for loneliness and it's been taken very seriously. And I address that up front in the book as well, that this is part of what we're feeling, part of the itch. But I, I distinguish between sort of the loneliness and this ache, you know, um, for connection with other people. I think we do feel that. But, you know, if we're to be honest about it, we have more connections than we've ever had before, right? You know, it's just noisy. We have noise. We have people coming at us constantly. What I articulate or try to articulate is that we are feeling this disconnect from really from ourselves, a meaningful relationship with ourselves, but also with the the matrix of life, the meaning of life. And so I call it a moral aloneness or moral loneliness that we're really feeling And I think that that's at the heart of so much of contemporary anxiety. I mean, anxiety is a big piece, a big part of, you know, what I explore in my previous book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, is that the way that we deal with anxiety today is very specific. You know, we used to use anxiety for really good reasons, like, you know, it was a flight or fight mechanism. That is what anxiety is. It, It tells us when to run from danger or to worry about something that we should be worried about. But today we we get anxious about being anxious. Then when we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious, and so down the spiral we go and we never resolve it. And I think that that is tied up also with this kind of disconnect that we're feeling. You know, it all just feels so pointless. So, again, you know, it's a lot, but I think that's what we're feeling. We're feeling all of it. And how do we piece it all apart? And so, yeah, you've identified, I think, a number of the the core feelings, you know, and I talk about it viscerally, you know, as an ache, as an itch. But that's 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 how we're experiencing it. Yeah, I was shocked actually to read that you learned that just prior to COVID, life expectancy in the United States had declined for the third year in a row. And the reason cited is diseases of despair. Incredibly sad. That's things like suicide and opioids, isn't it? That's right. And that's continued. So it continued through COVID and then it's continued for the two, three years afterwards. So I think the US is now up to seven years in a row. But when I was doing this new revised version for the UK, so, you know, this is a I really put it through the, the the British lens, you know, updating on all of the the information relating to climate issues in the UK, but, you know, obviously updating it overall. Um, this same trend was now playing out in the UK. So I think for one or two years now, um, UK life expectancy has dropped. The other thing I should add to that, Liz, and this is another marker of overall well-being, right, is that height, average height has also dropped in the US for the first time in history just recently. Again, a reflection of a whole range of things, including health markers, but also happiness levels Mm -hmm. and anxiety levels. So there's a lot going on there. And I think it's really interesting that we're seeing the same trends playing out in the UK now, albeit, you know, five, six years later. Interesting that you talked just now about loneliness. And, you know, what role does that play in our societal disconnection with the rest of the world? You know, I know for me, you know, lockdown was just devastating. And and so many people are still living with the repercussions of that, particularly in terms of our mental health. How important is this with with social and familial connection that that we maintain this, that that we keep our friends and our family and our community close to us, not just for comfort and support, but actually for our well-being? Yeah, you raise a really good point. So off the back of COVID, a number of studies and books came out. And one of them that was really interesting, I reference it in my book, Vivek Murthy, he was this uh, Surgeon General under the Obama administration. He came out with a book, the poor guy, it came out just as COVID hit. And, you know, but thankfully it was, it had a lot to do with COVID. And he refers to the fact that when we're in a crisis, and of course, COVID was a crisis, but I think, you know, we've also got the climate crisis, we've got AI, we've got nuclear threat, we've got everything that's going on around the world at the moment. Um, when we're in a crisis, what we tend to do is to reach out to our tribe, right? We get very communal. We sort of almost sacrifice some of our vested 
selfish interests and we, we need to connect with community. Now, we were prevented, you know, from doing that during COVID because of the yeah. lockdowns and the separation due to masks and all kinds of things. And so that actually sent us off into, I guess, into finding tribes in other ways. And for most people, or a lot of people, that meant going online. And that led to proliferation of paranoia, fanaticism, adhering to conspiracy theories. You know, I'm sure many listeners feel that they've mm. probably lost some loved ones um, almost permanently to, yeah. to the rolling conspiracy theories now because once you're in the algorithms, you know, you're kind of stuck in there for life. And that all makes sense. And Vivek actually in a separate study shows that when we're in a crisis, we also tend to forego rational thought, right? So we might know that a particular conspiracy might not be true, but we'll still share the Facebook meme or whatever that our friends posted because belonging to that friendship group matters more than adhering to rationality. So all of these things kind of make sense, but what it did do is it created this incredible fragmentation amongst families. It also led to confusion and we face so much uncertainty If I was to sum up what's going on, I would call it an uncertainty epidemic, right? And we have become, it's become really difficult to deal with uncertainty, in part because Mm -hmm. who do we trust? Where do we get our information from? Everyone's gone. The algorithms actually prevent us from actually, you know, making good conscious decisions, you know, in the face of uncertainty. Having a wider discussion, perhaps. It becomes an Nuance echo chamber, has gone out the window. Exactly. And we, we bifurcate. We basically take sides. And when we're in a crisis, when we're scared, when there's fear, we also want to find an enemy, right? So in, in the climate crisis, we, we're always constantly trying to find the enemy, which is so difficult, Liz, because with the climate crisis, really, we're all the enemy. You know, we're all part of this. And that is just so hard to fathom. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's obviously an issue that we want to avoid addressing because it is a really frightening, frightening proposition. The other piece that I bring up in the book that I think is relevant to your question is that um, technology, like 70 to 90% of all technology that's been created in the last 30 years, and this will, I think, speak to any parents listening out there, has been created to take us away from discomfort. So it's not been about, you know, I don't know, saving saving the world, creating world peace, whatever it might be. It's been about like cocooniness, making us super comfy, you know. And, we, you know, it's everything from we don't have to wonder what the capital of Uzbekistan is. You know, we don't have to sit there in, in uncertainty about that. We don't have to wonder how long our train will take. We don't have to wonder about being bored. And I think this is really speaks to the the challenges that parents face with children is that they've become very cocooned you know it's it's and uncertainty and discomfort is something that they're not able to tolerate so that also means that when we have to face difficult subjects you know which is basically everything at the moment we don't have the tolerance we don't have the resilience to be able to stick with a problem to go to the edge, to, as you say, have the hard conversations. And uh, so that also plays into all of this. Yeah. And I think we have to acknowledge as well that we can actually have plenty of people around us, hopefully now. We might not be physically alone, but we can still feel lonely. So how do we go about getting then this this real connection? How do we nurture that rather than this just sort of almost artifice that's created with social media. Yeah. So I use the phrase, the diet version of life, you know, the L-I-T-E version of things. So, you know, instead of, you know, like a lot of young people are turning to porn, which is the diet version of in real life, you know, sexual relationships with the opposite sex or, you know, the same sex as the case may be. We, we, we do it, you know, across the board with dating as well. We, we do online dating and people don't actually turn up to the real thing. And I cite a whole range of examples of that in the book and the number of young people that aren't getting their driver's license because it actually involves turning up IRL to something, yes. right? You know, we, <laughs> right. you know, can't it's one of those virtually. things, it's one of those things you can't do virtually. And that's really impacting things. So in terms of what we can do to counter that, I just think we've got to get out and, you know, do as much as we can in real life to mm-hmm. forego mm-hmm. the tech version of something, even if it might be, if, you know, if it might be easier. We can use technology to do meetups. I mean, there's all that kind of thing. But 
it takes a mentality shift and especially coming out of COVID, as you mentioned, you know, and especially given that we're a generation now that are so used to doing everything remotely, we actually need to counter it proactively. We've actually got to also have that mentality shift where this idea of going to your edge, you know, and your edge is that spot where you're uncomfortable, you know, and I remember, and I'm going to name drop here, but I was doing a conference, a presentation, and Brene Brown was the other speaker at the event, and we were backstage and in the green room, and we were having a chat about our various neuroses, and, you know, we both, we shared a a bunch of them, Um, (laughs) you know, I think a lot of, a lot of women would relate to the ones that we share, but, you know, she said that when she um, feels anxious, she often says to herself, this means something is happening. You know, something is happening. And that is your edge. You go when you're when you're at a point where there's this anxiety, you've got the nervousness, the butterflies in your stomach, you're starting to sweat, we can very easily immediately interpret that as anxiety. Oh, this is anxiety. I've got to stop it. I've got to get, you know, I have no tolerance for this kind of discomfort. I'm meant to get rid of it. And, you know, this obviously speaks to the stuff I cover off in that the first we make the beast beautiful is that, you know, a big part of learning to thrive, not just live, but thrive with anxiety and to use it as a superpower is to build up this tolerance and to reframe it as as excitement. Quite often mm-hmm. what we're experiencing is actually excitement as opposed to anxiety. Yeah. Um, so that is, I think, really crucial. We need to start having conversations around this, having little like sayings that we, you know, say in our heads at certain times that will take us out of that comfort space and start to sort of test our ability to to do stuff in real life, you know. And so I have examples of it in the book. It, it might even just be, you know, walking a different way to the post office or to the bus stop in the morning, or it might mm-hmm. be challenging yourself to have a conversation with the barista who makes you coffee each day. It's that kind of thing that can build up this new muscle. Um, And, yeah, I I list them a bunch of them. Yeah, and I'm someone, Mm -hmm. you know, in the book I I do the extreme version of it. I've always been a bit of a edge seeker and, you know, I I quote a friend (laughs) in the book who says to me, Sarah, it's like you're looking for trouble. And I kind of right. do, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I've lived around the world um, with one backpack yeah. for 10 years. I, wow. I've done all the wrong things. But it's been primarily about going to that edge and meeting my connection with life, you know. I, I love that that way of reframing anxiety as excitement, even just that very simple little hack there. I think that's that that's a great takeaway for, for people listening. And to add some science to that, Liz, is that the way that we experience anxiety in our brain, it actually is the same neuron transfer as that which is used when we're um, experiencing excitement, right? So our brains sometimes don't know the difference. So we do have that choice. And, you know, I, mm. I cite some studies that show that even just using the words, I am currently doing excitement is enough to make that reframing wow. happen. Yeah. And I actually do that. You know, um, people often ask me, what hacks from all the hacks that you share in all of your mm. books do you actually live by? That's absolutely one that I use, you know, even ahead of doing something like a podcast like this or the live talks that I do. I often have to say, Sarah, you're currently doing excitement. Yeah, it can shift. It. it can shift my outlook to, yeah. okay, game oh. on, let's do this. Yeah, I quite see that. And then paradoxically, is it sometimes that we need to quieten the noise from other people, perhaps actually spend a bit of time on our own when we are alone to foster a connection just with ourselves? Yeah, I think so. I, I call that Uh, soul nerding. Soul nerding. Yeah, that's it. So it's about reading the works of incredible people who have experienced difficult times like the ones we're straddling and really absorbing their deep words. And it might often be poetry. It's generally long form essays or beautiful works, you know, of literature. And the incredible thing is there's this correlation between hard times, like radical shifts in maybe your own personal life, but also, you know, globally, you know, at a societal level, whether it's a world war or whether it's a depression or whatever. During these times, that's when big, sensitive, deep minds who are feeling it all, 
that's that's when they emerge and write really good stuff. So that's you know that's when great literature emerges. Mm. But as an exercise in itself, you know, because we 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 do need to rely on some exercises that take us in the opposite direction to what we've been doing. Reading poetry and also reading literature, like really good quality writing, it's a practice in itself. So studies have been done to show that, you know, young people in particular, but I think it's really anyone who's opened up a social media app recently, we've lost the ability to stay with, um, you know, long forms of, of reading to the point where there's a whole generation of young people who are struggling to to sign contracts, work contracts and so on and land in trouble because they're not able to read through a two-page document, you know. But the art of it has been looked at and poetry in particular, I was never an arty kind of person, like I'm a complete Philistine. That's how I grew up. I, I just... But through this sort of search that I've been on for, you know, a number of decades now, I've learned about the science and also just even the practical experience of sitting with poetry and it's often the gaps between the words where the meaning the spiritual meaning the connection happens you know and it's very different to reading a newspaper article or some such sure so that kind of stuff is actually a form of spiritual practice because it it, you know as you say to answer your question it connects ourselves with our own deep self you know it's like we read about Proust or Virginia Woolf you know sharing an experience and we go to that experience and we formulate our own take, our own wisdom, our own connection with something meaningful. So it's it's actually quite a, as far as hacks go, it's not a bad one, right? Most people I think would like to have the prescription to read some beautiful writing, you know, it's, it's, um, and it works. Yeah, brilliant. And I think that's so useful, particularly for women in midlife, maybe who've spent probably a lifetime, you know, prioritizing other people, or maybe people just feeling need to be safe and, and responsible. How do we then even begin to start thinking about what makes us really joyful or peaceful or, or connected to the world? Mm. You know, what other ways can we encourage that sense of joy and peace? Yeah, well, I think a lot of, you know, women, myself included, we reach a certain age and we go, I don't know if I even know what I like doing, right? We've got inklings about it. You know, I remember when I was editing Cosmopolitan magazine, I was working these ridiculously long hours and I was just frazzled. And I'd see people languidly doing a crossword puzzle at 10 o'clock in a cafe. And I'm like, who are these people? Uh, You know, like, and how wonderful it would be. Now, I can tell you now, I got to that stage where, well, actually, I got very, very sick and I had to leave that particular position it's mm. a big part of my story um, I developed a, mm. a disease called Hashimoto's which I think you know there's probably a fair few of your listeners who know that know that yeah, disease it absolutely. tends to hit women in particular but also sort of in midlife but I remember I actually got to the point where I could go and you know do a crossword puzzle in the cafe and I, and I didn't enjoy it like it actually sent me into a panic attack but that aside I do have a little tip in the book that can help us with that and Look, it picks up on a study that I came across many years ago that found that the unhappiest people in the world were women in their 40s who were lawyers, um, which wow. um, apologies to all That's women listening there who were lawyers specific. in their mid-40s. Yeah. It's very specific. I think it was even a 42-year-old lawyer. They drilled it down to that. Um, <laughs> now, there was this sociologist called Marcus Buckingham, and he used to write for me when I was editor of Cosmo. He did a follow-up study that looked into, okay, well, if that's the most miserable women, what are the happiest women getting right <laughs> in that demographic, you know, that sort of age group? And uh, what he found was the happiest women didn't so much try to work out the perfect sort of lifestyle situation. They didn't try to kind of find the the perfect ratio of time spent taking the kids to soccer practice versus time spent, you know, doing yoga and me time, blah, 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 blah. Instead, what they did was they tilted. They learned how to tilt. And that is to lean towards the thing that in any given moment makes sense and brings a lightness and a sense of it's not just about joy in terms of you know relaxation because that's not what we all want right all the time you know forced relaxation can send you into a panic (laughs) it's about sort of prioritizing and knowing what lights up your life and it might be taking your kids to soccer practice right Um, because once you learn to tilt and you realize that you are actually moving towards what matters to you 
in an intuitive felt sense in any given moment as opposed mm-hmm. to r- more rules and re- regulations, you know, applied to the situation. Yeah. And he makes the point that it's kind of what men do, right? Like right. Right. <laughs> men have a very good intuitive ability to know how to tilt towards what is a priority to them in that situation. So it's it's kind of a mindset shift. It's not like, oh, that's just a complete change of, of tactic in life. It's really about seeing the way that you do things slightly differently and it can create a lightness and a playfulness. This is something that I really encourage um, in the book is to is to learn is to 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 witness when you're being playful now another technique that obviously is a really big one in the book you can't miss it because it's the whole premise of the book is to go hiking to walk in nature so for anyone who hasn't read the book or doesn't know much about it in this one wild and precious life i hike around the world with a 15 kilo i think that's 35 pound day pack or you know carry on pack for three years in the footsteps of all these different philosophers and thinkers and poets who have been able to come up with some wonderful wisdoms that I felt could help people at this juncture in life and what I found was that the actual act of walking in nature is one of the best salves ever Ever. for bringing you back to (laughs) a connection with yourself because you go into this beautiful trance-like state. And and once again, lots of science has been put together to show how and why that works. It's mm-hmm. to do with ideas of awe, you know, having a no ceiling above you. It's to do with mm-hmm. even the hormones that trees release, mm-hmm. et cetera, Absolutely. et cetera. But it will also bring about a playfulness as well. It's great for combating anxiety. There are 42,000 studies Liz, done on the benefits of walking in nature, so much so that in parts of the world, um, including California, but also South Korea, Japan, they've brought in sort of walking in, you know, like forest therapy as part of their Mm -hmm. health um, policies. And I can just, if if, if you wanted to end this conversation here, I could just say, just (laughs) go and walk in nature and it does its thing. Yeah. You don't even have to worry. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to wonder if it's going to do its job. Am Mm -hmm. I doing it right? 20 minutes will probably do it. But if you can do a couple of hours, then you'll get a real boost. Um, It works. I love it. You you can just hand the job over to the trees. (laughs) That's great. I mean, two two, two of the things there that that really struck me, I I love that word tilt and, and tilting. I think we can all tilt. It's manageable. And and obviously hiking as well and being out in nature. I'd like to quote your own words from your book actually back to you because I think they're very powerful. You say, quote, I learned some time back that I could be fretting with anxiety and I could choose to live a great life. I didn't have to wait for a fix before I got on with fully living. And I think we often tell ourselves that we'll do things we've always wanted to do when something happens, you know, when I've lost weight, when the kids have moved out, you know, when this particularly difficult menopausal moment passes or whatever. But do we just need to, to do it now? Say, right, okay, today's the day. Yeah, I think it's a really great point. And I think it's something that you do almost intuitively arrive at when you reach a certain age because you realise this isn't the run-up any longer. This isn't the dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. I know I lived my life, and I think so many women do this, where we think, look, I'm going to do this job or make this sacrifice or whatever it'll be because it'll be great on my CV or it'll lead me to the next thing or whatever. You know, once menopause is over, then, you know, I'm going to be able to do this, this and this. There's always going to be something. When you reach your 40s, your 50s, I'm about to turn 50, it's like, this is the real deal. This oh, yeah. is well, I, I've, the I've grand just, performance. Just 60, and for me, that was a milestone. Even just saying those words used to fill me with panic, and now I just embrace it and feel very fortunate to have got yeah. this far. <laughs> That's it. And I think I think this is, you know, I, I wrote about it just recently on my Substack because I have this Hashimoto's autoimmune condition. And I remember quoting, coming across a quote from an American writer. She'd written about her diagnosis with Hashimoto's. This was years and years ago, but it stuck with me. She said that a doctor had said to her, maybe you'll just have to accept that you're going to feel 80%. You're only ever going to feel 80% well. And there's a certain amount of peace that I think needs to be made with whatever your life situation might be, because we're in it. Once you've reached our age, we're here, you know. That's not to say that you can't send it in different directions and tilt and steer and, you know, have an incredible second half of your life. 
But we are the people that we are. We've probably got a bunch of life situations that are just here. And, you know, what are we going to do about it, right? Are we going to are we going to let it hold us back or are we going to work with it? And again, you know, some of those mantras we talked about earlier, going to your edge, accepting pain, like sitting in the pain and the discomfort. Every, I mean, every spiritual tradition, religious tradition has got a lot of stuff that's been written about the pain that's created when you run from who you are or you run from your situation or the pain that you're in. Um, So just to add another life hack, which I think is non-negotiable in all of this, and it's changed my life, is meditation. Um, Meditation is simply the act of sitting longer, staying longer in your situation, you know, and it's you're building a muscle I mean, I'm a terrible meditator. I've got a fretty head. I'm, <laughs> you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar and, right. you know, from a, from a young age. I mean, you know, I am a classic candidate for being the worst meditator in the world. And my meditation teacher pretty much said that I was his toughest patient or client. <laughs> right. But so, yes, anyone who finds it a struggle, trust me, I'm there. I'm still there after 15 years of meditating. But the point is not what the actual 20 minutes or 15 minutes of meditation is about. It's about the actual muscle building that you do and then the application of of that sort of mindset once again into your real life. So it's about coming back to your mantra or your breath or whatever it will be Mm. over and over again. So you go from discomfort and wanting to flee to I'm going to stay. We stay with this and now we see what happens. That in itself is really at the heart of what we're talking about here is an ability to stay in your life situation. And then what are you going to do about it? You can do great things because you're not putting all your energy into fighting who you are and where you're at. Well, I think there's some really great life hacks there. Let's just pause for a moment. When we come back, I'd love to hear more about your take on sugar particularly, as well as how you continue to take control of your physical and your mental health. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So let's talk a little bit more about health. In your mid-30s, various specialists told you that you would never be able to have kids, that you were going through premature menopause as a side effect of your Hashimoto's. Talk to me about that period in your life and and where you're at now. Yeah, well, it was pretty tough news to take. I I was working in magazines. I had a very full-on life. I was running around madly, burning candles, both ends, all of that kind of thing. And really, I think that 
my autoimmune disease was the thing that kind of I think my subconscious brought to the surface to make me stop. I don't know if I would would have stopped otherwise. I don't know what would have stopped me except that I got this disease that, you know, ground me to a halt. Um, so, look, what I had to do from there was, and anyone with Hashimoto's would know this, it's nebulous. It's like you can go to an endocrinologist and they'll give you a tablet to take, but it only does the job part of the way because it's so complex. Every single cell in our body has a thyroid receptor cell. So that is why when you've got a thyroid disease like Hashimoto's, it can make the whole of yourself feel terrible. And you can have all these different symptoms because it does in fact affect every organ, every single Mm -hmm. part of your being, including your mental health. So it was not so much a matter of going on a journey to go and fix it, but to actually probably just get well broadly because there was no fix. Um, And part of that was, um, you know, I did what I'm sure many of your listeners would do. I packed up my entire life. Um, This is after a year of not being able to walk or work. And by the way, in this time, well, before this really terrible time, I'd gone from Cosmo going, right, I've got to get my life together to hosting the the most watched television show in Australian history. So it was MasterChef Australia, the first series. I mean, it was just kind of comical how I was being tested by life, you know, like, how serious are you, Sarah, about making a change? We're just going to dangle another, you know, extraordinarily glamorous and exciting job in front of you. Um, By the end of that uh, series, I was extremely unwell and packed up my life and moved to a army shed in the forest in a place called Byron Bay, which is outside, well, when I say outside Sydney, what am I talking about? It's an eight-hour drive right, okay. north well of Sydney. Outside. But, <laughs> mm, but it's a big sort of alternative hippie kind of place. Um, I guess, I don't know, the most similar in the UK would might be Totnes. I don't know. It's where all the hippies go to kind of work themselves out. So I went up there and ran a bunch of experiments um, on my health to see if I could get myself better. And one of those experiments was quitting sugar. And I used to write a sort of a column each week for one of the major newspaper magazines. And that was my way of earning an income while also trying to get better. And so one week my experiment was to quit sugar and I gave it a go for two weeks and, and felt results and I just kept going and going. And that turned into a juggernaut. Well, it did. You found it. Sugar Empire. Yeah, you found it. The I Quit Sugar movement, the books as meal programs. Uh, you know, I know that you you sold the company. You gave everything to charity, which was extraordinary. As you still do, I read somewhere that you give eighty percent of your income to charity. That's an extraordinary feat. Well, it amounted to that, but yes, I gave absolutely everything from I Quit Sugar to to charity to a trust that I set up, and then I mm-hmm. I funded a bunch of charities over the course of two years. Um, that money's now run out, but any money that I do still earn from I Quit Sugar uh, goes to charity. And 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 look, there's new owners now. I have nothing to do with it um, mm-hmm. per se. Just extraordinary. So let's, on a practical level, talk about that. I know there'll be a lot of people listening because I bang on about low sugar, zero sugar. You know, it's something that's an absolute fundamental for me. Where's the best place then for someone to start if they if they know instinctively that they do need to cut back on sugar? Yeah. Well, look, my books are still available in the UK. The first one, I Quit Sugar, has the eight-week program in it. And I spent almost three years researching that. Um, You know, I was sort of very early, you know, in all of this. It was 2011. Um, Not much had been written about it. It was all very fringe stuff happening at obesity conferences, you know, and and diabetes conferences. Um, And so I took all the science and I moved in and around the science and basically put together a program that I thought that would work for the everyday person who had kids, busy lives, all that kind of thing. And also who, I guess I understood particularly the female approach to food, Mm. that restriction can actually cause so much angst and it actually produces the opposite result. I mean, honestly, there's not a person out there listening to this who doesn't understand what I'm talking about. You see a wet paint sign, all we want to do is touch it. You say, don't (laughs) eat this, all we want to do is eat it. So, you know, I worked with the psychology of how we could crowd out sugar with exciting foods that made us feel good and didn't feel like we were missing out. So, look, if if you're wanting a shortcut version to things, if you want to start straight away, a couple of things. Don't ever drink 
liquid sugar in whatever form. So you know, we're talking obviously, you know, fizzy drinks, but also fruit juice. Fruit juice contains Absolutely. just as much sugar like as, yeah, as, as Coca-Cola Pure or whatever. Pure sugar. Mm-hmm. Pure sugar. And back when I was talking about all of this, I was ridiculed because it was like, but fruit, it's natural. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not how we're meant to be eating it. Eat your two pieces of fruit. Great. Sure. But a glass of juice is this huge dumping of just the sugar. And our body doesn't care if it comes from sugar cane, if it comes from honey, if it comes from an apple squeezed by monks on the side of a mountain. Like nobody, (laughs) our body does not care. All it absorbs is the fructose. So, you know, we're talking nine teaspoons of sugar in a large glass of juice. If we go juice to, to fizzy drink, it's exactly the same amount, about nine teaspoons of added sugar. The WHO, the World Health Organization, and most of your health bodies in the UK recognize fruit juice as added sugar. It's, you know, the same, the same stuff. So don't do any liquid sugar. Also, this is always surprises people, but slash comes as good news. The diet version or the skinny version or the whatever version, you know, the low fat version of a food is generally more fattening. And that is once it's in your body. So, you know, it's, it's, it's on the it? table. Yeah, it is. And it sounds like, you know what I'm talking about here. So when you remove, there's two things going on, particularly with dairy products. Let's focus on that. If you take yogurt, if you take a low fat yogurt and a full fat, unadulterated yogurt, the low fat one will end up being more fattening because two reasons. When you take out the fats, a lot of the lactase is removed. That's the enzyme that helps break down the lactose and also helps you just digest the food and the fat and everything in general. And so your body just doesn't absorb it in the same way. And when it struggles to absorb things, it will absorb it as as visceral fat in particular. But also manufacturers have to put something back in when they remove the fat. And it's for fullness of of mouth experience that's the technical phrasing and so what do they do they generally put sugar back in so if you if you go into a supermarket you'll generally see that the low fat version has a lot more sugar and just to give a i guess a an easily explainable visual example when pig farmers want to fatten up their pigs they often get you know milk from the nearby dairy that can't be sold is slightly off or whatever it is they feed them low fat milk because it's more fattening. So, amazing, so there's that. Yeah, I know. And then I would say, look, the, the easiest thing to do, you know, is to just basically cook your own food. Processed food contains huge amounts of sugar. Most of the added sugar that we consume in our life comes from packaged foods. If you can eliminate packaged foods of any kind in any direction and, and then go and cook your own food starting from real ingredients – you're not really going to land in too much trouble. Mm. So there are a couple of the basics. Um, Mm. There are so many other little ways to go about things. Um, Mm. This doesn't mean having a life of absolutely no sugar forever. In my experience, just weaning yourself off it. You know, I used to eat a lot of milk chocolate. I switched to dark, you know, just gradually increasing the amount of coca solids in in the chocolate bars that I was eating. And now, you know, I can't eat very sweet milk chocolate is just too sweet it almost kind of hurts my teeth that's it you just adjust your taste buds don't you that's it and the good news the great news if I can offer this to people is that the first two things that um, change when you quit sugar so some of the effects can take up to eight weeks you know but one thing that does shift very fast is your taste buds so that generally happens in about the two first two weeks that your taste buds change and you can't tolerate the milk chocolate you used to eat before like I I eat 90% dark chocolate every day People are always surprised to hear it, but it contains so little sugar that, you know, that's not the issue. I just love it for the fat content and the the caffeine. It's sort of my morning treat. But I can't tolerate even 70% cacao chocolate. Like, it's just too sweet, you know. So that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is that your skin changes. So pimples and wrinkles back off, like start to fade away within two weeks of quitting sugar. And so it's kind of quite good because it's, you know, your ego is, is kind of can keep you going for the remaining six weeks, you know, that it takes to actually really shift the both psychological, but physical habit of sugar. Mm. And do you think then that tackling the amount of sugar that we're eating needs to come from the the higher powers, if you like, governments and, and big food companies, or how much of this just needs to be a personal responsibility? I think it's terrible that it is a personal responsibility because it is an addictive substance and big food, you know, these big food companies in cahoots with 
government because they get so many um, taxes and also funding, you know, like political funding from these big food companies. They have made it really something that we don't have a choice about, right? So a lot of people don't have access to anything, nothing but processed food. Also, it is addictive. So it's a bit like the arguments in and around tobacco that we were having 20, 30, up to 50 years ago, Mm. where there had to be a recognition that these companies were profiting from a substance that was highly addictive. That's how we need to see things with sugar. It's just, it's exactly the same argument and exactly the same thing happened where it was all put down to the personal will of the individual. Now, Mm. having said all of that, I hate to say it, no government is anytime soon going to bring in the adequate taxes, the adequate regulations. They'll sort of do it around the edges. I've been in this space for a very long time. I was part of the the soda tax and, and I was, you know, in the UK when yeah, all of that was happening. It was looking mm. great. And it's all got reversed. Any efforts, you know, there was Mexico was doing really well with it for a while and it got reversed. So, look, I don't think it's going to happen. And that's kind of the premise to why I did I Quit Sugar. It was like we can't sit around waiting for governments and for big food to kind of be decent yeah, about all say, this. Oh, yeah, we're so going to let's just do it money. ourselves. So it's just like, right, let's, yeah. take, let's take that option away. And hopefully if there is more demand for the, for the lower sugar and the, Correct. And, the and that is stuff. happening. That yeah. is the only shift that I've seen occurring where you do see these products, you know, it's become a cool thing, a desirable yes. thing to say low sugar. Um, so, yes, I think it's it's really going to be from that. Um, but, you know, I just say, particularly to parents, don't wait for the government or a school or your school canteen to change anything. Just do it yourself now. Yeah. yeah. And looking at the bigger picture now of, of your health, can you feel your life changing? You know, your character, your abilities, you know, does that change as you move into midlife? Do you think about your health differently now? And, you know, I got a new book, A Better Second Half for next year. Do you, do you actively take steps to enjoy a better second half? Yeah, I do. I, I, I don't say this just because of the audience I'm speaking to you. I would say that my life gets better as I mean, it gets better and better as I get older. I think this is a great time to be a woman, you know, 50 plus, 40 plus. Totally. Yeah, it, it's an important time as well. And that's what I always try to impress upon, you know, people my age, women my age. So I, I, I sort of, I'm paraphrasing a mixture between, I think, Jermaine Greer, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Australian feminist who mm. took up residence in the UK. Uh, I think she's more of a Brit these days. And then Jane Fonda, who I think appropriated mm. a quote from Jermaine. And that was that as our estrogen drops off and, you know, we, we go through peri or full menopause, our sort of uh, axis of care changes. And I think Jane uses a bit of a profanity here, but, you know, it's like we have less um, let's say figs to give about mm-hmm. the wrong things and more sure. and more to give about the right yeah. things. And she she argues that, you know, being in your fifties or even your sixties and into your seventies is the best time to become an activist. Yeah. Because you just don't care no. about what people think. <laughs> and we've had a that. lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a lifetime of people yeah. of caring about what people and think of us and caring about everyone you've around given us. Them all and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Your fig quota but has you've been got used this muscle. Up. <laughs> But you've got this incredible muscle, right, of care, ability yeah. to see nuances, to understand complex arguments. You've got this incredible skill set and capacity. And now you can go, mm. okay, what do I want to do with this? So a lot of women do become activists and start to get vocal. And I've witnessed that in myself. Like I've always been an activist of some sort, but now I don't get nervous about it. I don't second guess myself. I thoroughly enjoy it. I kind of get a kick out of being a bit recalcitrant and and sort of, well, you're not allowed to do that. Having said that, (laughs) um, I've recently moved to Paris from Australia and slash living around the world in part Mm. because this is a city where as a older woman, you get respect. You know, you like I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I would I would really encourage people to think about the environment that you live in, where you're going to feel like you can have your full voice, and 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 that's a decision that not everyone can make. But I think as you do get older, I mean, I'm surrounded here by expats. You know, expats, women who have come to Paris for the same reason yeah. as me, and we love it. That's that's just amazing. I mean, I think to kind of sum up here, in many areas of your life, you've taken a lot of pain and grief, and you've galvanized it. You've galvanized yourself into action, and I think that's 
actually an incredible mental shift turning negatives into positives. And if you can just put your finger on what it's taken you to do that, I think that would be incredibly encouraging for everybody listening who might feel a little bit the same. Yeah. Um, oh, again, I, I, I guess I have a bunch of mantras and uh, in no particular order. I have a mantra that I used to work to it at I Quit Sugar and it was give a shit. It was hashtag give a shit. And it was like, do you give a shit? All right, let's do it. And it sort of had this sort of let's fired up, you know, sort mm-hmm. of energy to it. The go to your edge stuff like that we were talking about earlier, that has a big impact on me in terms of me getting there. But another one that I my meditation teacher imparted on me and he used to watch me oh run around madly trying to do all this stuff and and I'd been so much angst because I was trying too hard and he'd say Sarah first of all he used to say take your grubby mitts off it like just let release release (laughs) and then he would say Sarah keep the camera rolling And what he meant by that was Mm. your story hasn't ended here at this particular decision or, you know, anxiety point. It's going to keep going. So let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's you, me and the entire universe, the whole flow of everything that's going on. Let's see what happens. And that actually brings about this incredible playfulness, which gives me this confidence of, I don't know, this is all a big experiment. So let's just keep the camera rolling and see what happens and there's something really important that I'll just um, share with you and, and listeners is that it's really important to reflect back every now and then to see what happened when you did let the camera keep rolling when you didn't give up when you didn't say it all ends here and it's useless you've kind of almost got a chronicle it to sort of see the beauty of that wisdom I do that on a regular basis and I, and in my book I actually outline one technique for that which is a gratitude ritual it sounds very woo-woo I'm not into that kind of woo-woo stuff but um, it literally is just sitting there at night and reflecting on three surprising joyful moments and they'll generally be really small but they generally involve allowing life to happen and seeing the playfulness of it you know that practice in itself is a really important one so I've thrown another hack at you there Liz but um, to to finish things off but it's it it, that one certainly works thank you gratitude can't beat it well Sarah a huge uh, thank you lots of gratitude from me to you and from all my listeners for being with us it's been an absolute joy talking thank you I've thoroughly enjoyed it thank you Well, Sarah, a huge thank you again for your time. Do you know, I am certainly going to be thinking more about going to the edge, Hmm, going to the edge and looking over perhaps, and also trying to tilt a bit more, maybe tilting towards the action and the positive. Well, as always, of course, you can find more information about this and sugar in particular, another little soapbox topic of mine, lots of links and resources over on lizardwellbeing.com. That's also the place to go if you want to sign up for our free email newsletters and subscribe to the print magazine too. Do make sure that you're following the podcast so that you're back here with me next week. And I'm also going to be talking to somebody who's also been traveling the world recently, Emma O'Kelly. She's been exploring the health benefits of saunas and cold water swimming, amongst other good things. Just to say also that we talked a little bit through with Sarah her journey with Hashimoto's. And that reminded me that we do have a brilliant archive episode with Lauren Stoney. She has been talking to me in the past about the lightning process. Really fascinating technique. She got over her Hashimoto's using the lightning process, something that I will also be contacting Sarah about and putting her onto as well. Hopefully that might help her in the future if she still needs any support in that direction. Oh, and also, if you prefer to listen to your podcast ad-free, you can now subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee and you get early access to each and every episode too. Well, until the next time we chat, go very well. Goodbye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith.